Woody Allen once said that there are three rings involved in marriage. Maybe you've heard this. There's the engagement ring, there's the wedding ring, and then there is, anybody know? Suffering. (laughs) Now, as I approach this very important topic, there is a ring of truth to the suffering part, and I will discuss that a little bit later in my message. I want to begin by saying that although I have not experienced divorce personally, I can relate to the stresses that are involved in a marriage. As many of you are aware, uh, my first marriage ended in 2002 after my wife's death from colon cancer. And I've shared with several of you that some of the worst fights we ever had, hard to believe, took place within weeks of her death as we were exhausted. We had been through this process of fighting this disease for three and a half years, and we had had endless doctor's visits, endless chemo, endless radiation, three surgeries, one that lasted nine hours, PET scans, CAT scans, medical bills, piles of prescription drugs, and of course, the toll that it took on her emotionally, mentally, and physically, and the loss of intimacy in our marriage that subsequently happened as a result of that, and then not knowing how this was going to end. Would it end in my wife's death or would it end in her being permanently disabled? And I just want to be honest with you and say that the thought of divorce crossed my mind. The thought of getting out of this situation, getting out of the pain, getting out of this nightmare, if you will, definitely crossed my mind. It's interesting that whenever we enter the covenant of marriage and go through the wedding ceremony, which is really the easy part, We rarely consider the weight of our vows. Would you agree with me? In sickness and in health, in poverty and in prosperity, until death do us part. It's no wonder because the wedding ceremony really bears little or no resemblance to the the reality of living with another sinner. Would you agree? And what I want to show you now is... um, a two-minute video taken from a movie that exaggerates the challenges and some of the stresses that are involved in marriage. Take a look. This is the most romantic day of my whole life. This is the story we're going to tell our grandchildren. Barbara and Oliver Rose. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. What's your name? Barbara! They met great. Are you happy? I'm more than happy. This house is so beautiful, and we live here. House, car, boy, girl, puppy, kitty. They never had a chance. Your crystal is lovely. Back around. I didn't know anything about this before I met Oliver. (laughs) My mother bought her glasses at the A&P, you know, the kind with the raised... It always starts with the little things. And that phony laugh. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right, maybe overdid it. Let me have it. When I watch you eat, when I look at you lately, I just want to smash your face in. Smash my face. I want a divorce. You can't have one. When a couple starts keeping score, there is no winning. It's only degrees of losing. I am the one who found this house. I bought everything in it with my money. It's a lot easier to spend than it is to make it, honey bun. You might not have made it if not for me, sweet cakes. The yellow areas are mine. 
The red areas are hers. This seems rational to you both. I got more square footage. These people are going to hurt each other. Get out of the car, hon. And when trouble begins, it comes at you from directions you'd never expect. We haven't passed any point of no return. I have. you were Barbara. Michael Douglas. Nobody who makes pate this good can be all bad. Kathleen Turner. That depends on what the pate is made of. And Danny DeVito. Sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? The War of the Roses. Directed by Danny DeVito. Coming this Christmas. <laughs> Some of you remember that movie. I'm convinced that most of the things that we believed when we entered marriage turned out not to be true. One of the myths that we believed that marriage would somehow bring us sustained and perpetual happiness. One of the reasons why marriage gets such a bad reputation these days is because it's not the cure-all that it's supposed to be. It doesn't do what our parents, our friends, our stuff, our education, our successes have been able to do, but unable to do, which is to make us happy. We still believe that marriage is our great hope, that our, marriage, that our spouse is responsible for our happiness. And we bought the lie that married couples are two halves who come together to, to become whole, which is absolutely not biblical at all. Rather, it is from a biblical perspective that marriage is two whole people whom Christ completes, who become one flesh when their souls are knit together by the Spirit of God. And we certainly come to discover that love is not a perpetual romantic feeling, but it's a daily choice, an act of the will to die to self and to live to others, which is why in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are commanded to love their wives. Wives are commanded to respect their husbands, but how difficult it is to come to that realization sometimes. And I think given the fact that marriage has such a load, tremendous load that's been placed on its back to usher in this state of perpetual happiness, it really is no surprise that few remain in a marriage when the difficult times come or feelings begin to fluctuate. And I want to make it clear that it was no different in first century Palestine. Jesus lived within a rab rab rabbinical or rabbi culture that was highly influenced and shaped by the surrounding Greco-Roman culture where divorce for any reason was widely embraced and practiced. The Jews had their own version of the Roman no-cause divorce. And it's no surprise, therefore, that Jesus touches on it in the Sermon on the Mount. And then later, as we'll look, he touch on, touches it on again in Matthew chapter 19, because marriage does matter. And I want to acknowledge as I begin this morning that I realize that I'm standing and walking on sacred ground in a message like this. And it's a heavy message, but I do take it very, very seriously. And I acknowledge, too, that if you, my audience, are an average sampling of the Christian statistic on divorce, then... Half of those of you who are married or have been married have experienced divorce. So this is something that's going to be very personal to many of you. And the challenge of preaching on this topic, especially in 30 minutes, is that there are so many unique scenarios and circumstances that are involved in the decision to end a marriage. I can't possibly speak to all of them, and I, I will not attempt to do that because it just, the time does not permit me. But no matter what your view on divorce and remarriage in, in the scriptures, the words of the prophet Malachi will always ring true. He says that I hate 
divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. He hates it. He hates what it does to the individuals, to the families, to the children, to the hearts of men and women. We know that from the very beginning, God's plan has been one woman, one man, leaving their family of origin and establishing a new home and becoming one flesh for life. But in the same breath, I want to say that God is a realist. He acknowledges that marriage involves two sinful human beings. And he does acknowledge that there is always some degree of a hardness of heart that causes ultimately the end of some marriages. Let's take a look at the text that's before us as we continue to go through the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. I'm focusing on verses 31 and 32 today, so take a look at this. Very important beginning. It has been said, Jesus speaking here, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, at face value, that's very straightforward. But one of the things we've learned in Bible study, in Bible study methods, is that you've got to consider the context. And in this case, it is especially important that we understand the social, cultural, and rabbinic context of the first century, especially how the Jews heard this message, because we know that Matthew's gospel was written primarily to a Jewish audience, and they understood and were immersed in common rabbinical teaching of that period of time. But before we actually get and look at verses 31 and 32, I want us to take a kind of a running start and get up to where that is by looking at the verses that precede it, verses 17 through 30. The phrase, you have heard that it was said, is repeated six times just between verses 21 and 43. So when we do Bible study, we have to look at repeated phrases. Jesus continues to say, you have heard that it was said. Well, said by whom? He's referring to the scribes and Pharisees, his continual nemesis throughout his ministry. We can't be too hard on these guys because truly they were zealous for the law of God. They truly wanted to make sure that the 613 laws that Moses received at Mount Sinai, between the time of the giving of the law and the time that we now encounter this teaching 1,400 years later, they wanted to make sure that the law of God was preserved. But in their attempt to do that, what they did was they added to it. Through that 1,400-year period of time, they took the original law of Moses and they added their own oral and written traditions, which began to look nothing like the original law and certainly did not communicate the original intent of the law of Moses. So the scribes and Pharisees became their, self-appoint, their own self-appointed law police, and they were the focus of much, much of Jesus' rebukes and criticism during his ministry, especially because of their hypocrisy. And they were convinced that God was obligated to honor their devotion, their zeal for observing the law, and their means of protecting the law by adding another border around the existing law, their traditions, and do it to the letter. But as we continue to see, and as we see especially in the Sermon on the Mount, that they had become blind to the meaning or the intent of the law that they so diligently studied and taught and defended. They missed the heart of it. And this is critical to understand as we get into the teaching on divorce. We get a feel for this externalism or this focus on or this duplicity that Jesus was concerned about in Matthew 23 when he says to them, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, 
but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. When you are God, you see within the hearts of men and women. You look at the duplicity. You see that it's all about performance. It's all about doing the right thing, what Christians, followers of God, are supposed to do. But God is concerned about here because what comes from here is how we live our lives. But, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees had their own criticisms of Jesus because he brought a new emphasis on what the actual meaning or the intent of the law was. Plus, he taught with authority, which drove them crazy, And he addressed the hidden motives of men and women's hearts, which they could not judge. And it was obedience to God from the inside that expressed itself outwardly, rather just from the show of piety or zealousness for God. So the scribes and the Pharisees made it a point to go after Jesus. They considered him a false teacher as well as a threat because he interrupted their tidy system of legalism. They constantly challenged Jesus, especially in respect to the law of Moses and how Jesus understood it. Because if they could capture him at that point and somehow they could find Jesus contradict Moses, then they had him. But here's how ridiculous the Pharisees observed the law, how they totally forgot what it was intended to do. For instance, the law of the Sabbath. Jesus walks into a synagogue in Matthew chapter 12. There was a man there with a withered hand. And the Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse Jesus. Now, forget about the man with the withered hand. They're concerned about Jesus working, doing something they would consider a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus later goes on to explain, if you had one of your animals that fell in a ditch on the Sabbath, wouldn't you go and help that animal out of the ditch? How much less should we help a man with a withered hand? But they had so lost the intent of the Sabbath that it was made for man not man for the Sabbath, that they were even questioning Jesus' ability or desire to heal someone. They had totally forgotten what the Sabbath was for. And then in Matthew 19, they asked the same question regarding divorce. They asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife, and here's the key, for any cause? They were speaking specifically to the law as they understood it, that a man could divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever. But their motivation was to trap him. It wasn't to learn from him or to seek the heart of the Father whom he was sent by. It was simply to find something that he would say to contradict Moses, or at least their interpretation of it. So by doing so, they could discredit him as a false teacher in the eyes of what began to be a growing following that he had. And they were extremely jealous. And even though the scribes and Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the law of Moses, on repeated occasions, what they were actually breaking was their traditions, the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees, the oral and written law that they had added and therefore had, had lost the original intent that the law was given for. So in Matthew 5, verse 21, through the end of the chapter, Jesus exposes the true spirit behind the letter of the law when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, as he repeats that over and over again, But this isn't Jesus against Moses. It's Jesus against the false and superficial interpretations of Moses. And in regard to the law, the two errors of the scribes and Pharisees. And these were the two things. Number one, they restricted God's commands in terms of just the act itself. 
Jesus was not only talking about literal murder and literal adultery, which are certainly violations of the Ten Commandments, but Jesus was saying the precursors to murder, anger, and the precursor to adultery, lust, were also under judgment. They were also sin. But we always consider the act itself is the only sin that we will be judged for. But number two, they extended the commands of God past his intention, as in the law of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man to find a day of rest and recovery and to focus on the nature and character of God. But was it certainly permissible for somebody to be healed, for an act of mercy or kindness and compassion to be done during the, on the Sabbath? Of course. But they had so overprotected it that you couldn't do any work, even if it meant showing mercy just to a fellow human being. In verses 21 and 22 concerning the law against murder, Jesus takes that narrow view of murder because the Pharisees and scribes hadn't committed the actual act. And he says it goes beyond that. He says, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject, subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. By the way, that includes all of us. So whether you're a scribe or Pharisee, you come to Jesus and say, I haven't committed all, I haven't broken the Ten Commandments. Yeah, you have. You have committed the act of adultery or murder in your mind. But I want to emphasize that Jesus is not saying that anger is as bad or has the same consequences as, of course, murder. And that's, I think that's morally confusing to think that someone who verbally expresses anger towards someone uh, has sinned as badly or in the same degree of someone who murders, actually murders another human being. But Jesus' emphasis is on both will be judged. It's not just the action itself, it's the intent, it's the thought and the attitude behind it. And he does the same thing with adultery. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, everyone he's talking to, scribes and Pharisees included, and us, are guilty. The law has judged us guilty. Because where does adultery begin? It begins with the eyes. It begins with a look, and another, and then another. And long before the act of adultery ever takes place, there's a series of deliberate steps or choices that we make. Adultery begins innocently enough, but if our glance becomes a lingering gaze, and then followed by a plan, it can eventually turn into the act itself. In fact, the verb here, to look at a woman, to look, is a present participle and refers to the continual process of looking, not just a glance, but intentional and repeated gazing upon someone in a specific way. And all of us are guilty of this. We live in a visually overstimulated culture. We cannot completely escape the occasional look or visual or looking at someone else, but we can control how we look and how long we look and what is going through our minds at that time. We still have choices. In fact, Martin Luther put it beautifully once when he said, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you certainly can keep them from making a nest in your hair. We have choices. We do have the ability to control. And finally, we come to the passage of focus for today, and that's Matthew 5, 31 and 32, as I'll read again. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, Jesus has already thrown back the covers and said all of us are condemned by the law. We've all sinned, not just because we committed the physical act of murder or adultery, but because we have had the thought, because we've had anger, we've had lust in our heart. 
So it's no accident that Jesus taught on the root causes of murder and adultery, anger and lust, right before he gets to divorce. Because if, if you are married or have been married, if you haven't considered murder as an option in times of stress, then you have certainly experienced a degree of anger, unless you are superhuman, which is always the precursor to a murderous act. In fact, a statistic from the U.S. Department of Justice between the years 1976 and 2002, 11% of the murder victims in those years were killed by their spouses. 11%. That's unbelievable. We read about this all the time. It is the precursor to the actual act. Can our spouses do things that aggravate us like they saw in World of the Roses? Yeah, at some, at point, some points they can. It's not unusual then. So when Jesus gets to divorce, he has already passed through those topics of murder and, ang- and adultery, the things that certainly contribute to the act of divorce. In order to better understand the words of Jesus, though, in Matthew 5, we have to go back to another passage also in Matthew that Jesus expounds on because this is when the leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, actually came to him. Instead of Jesus just saying, you have heard that it was said, they come to him and ask him a direct question about his position on adultery. And I want to read this to you, because it's the only two places in, this, in all of the Gospels that Jesus refers to divorce. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. Again, they're, all, they're not looking to learn. They're not looking to hear him speak on behalf of his father. They just want to see if they can find fault. They asked him, is it lawful, there's the law again, for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Because that's what they practiced. Jesus said, haven't you read he replied that at the beginning of crea- that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what god has joined together let no one separate why then they asked did moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, let me unpack that a little bit for you. Did Moses command divorce or did he mandate divorce even if a spouse committed adultery? No, he didn't, but he did allow it for under certain circumstances. When the, when the Pharisees were saying that Moses commanded divorce, they were referring to a very specific passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, which they misinterpreted. And this passage in Deuteronomy 24 addressed a very specific case of an unusual circumstance of divorce case law, where a, a man divorces his wife for a reason other than adultery, and he simply gives her a certificate of divorce, which is how they did it, I divorce you, and, she's, and she has to go. She then goes and marries another man who also gives her a certificate of divorce, sends her away, or the man dies, either situation. That woman who was divorced twice was not permitted to go back to her first husband because she had been let go the first time without committing adultery, therefore let go unlawfully. Moses permitted her first husband to issue his wife the certificate of divorce, which is critical. What is a certificate of divorce? Well, there are three things involved with this. Number one, it protected the woman's reputation from slander since he divorced her for a reason other than adultery. It was something she would carry on her if she met another man because it was implied that she would get remarried, as I'll mention in just a minute, that she was divorced for reasons other than actual breaking the physical covenant within the marriage. 
Number two, it legally freed her from her first marriage and gave her the right to remarry, so she had some means of support. And this is where the Bible is very, very practical, because somehow we think that God does not think about maybe the financial plight of women, especially during the first century, even today, that lost their primary means of financial material support. Let me give you a little insight into the rights of women in the first century. Maybe you knew this. But in the first century, women generally were considered the property of their husbands. The man had authority over his wife and daughters, establishing even their activities and guarded their relationships. The rabbis taught that women were not to be spoken to in the street, and they were not to be instructed in the law. They actually sat in a different place within the synagogue. If you go to Israel today, you go to the Western Wall, you'll see men and women still divided there. If they left their house, they had to be veiled. If they were married, if they were, their head was uncovered, they were either single or considered a prostitute. And they had to walk six paces behind their husband, and they could not speak to other men. They had no legal rights. Their testimony was not acceptable in the court of law, and they did not have the right to initiate a divorce. They could not be disciples of any rabbi, and they certainly could not travel with him, which gives you a little bit more insight into the way that Jesus brought us a new dignity, a new honor, a new respect to women because he had a growing female following. And he spoke to the woman at the well and said, how could you being a man speak to me, a woman, let alone a Jew? So he brought this new message. But here's the key to the certificate of divorce. They rarely, women rarely held a job outside of their domestic duties. There were very few professions for women during this time. They were completely dependent on their husband for the family income. If they were divorced, they had two options. They either go back to their parents and live with them or they get married again. So the certificate of divorce was built into the law to allow to give women this allowance for whether for if a man sent them away unlawfully. So the certificate of divorce was a very practical concession in the law which allowed these women uh, to find another means of support, which was generally speaking to get remarried again so they wouldn't end up homeless. Because when marriages failed, guess who had to pay the financial price? It was the woman. She was more vulnerable and usually suffered more. Not, not much has changed. Statistically, each year in the United States, 2.8 million men and women divorce. And financially, the studies show that in the first year after divorce, a wife's standard of living usually drops in the area of 27%. And that's a significant drop in that first year. The third thing that the certificate of divorce did, it was allowed the woman to keep her father's dowry. The man paid the father a bride price before he married her, but the father paid a dowry to the couple. If she did not get divorced for adultery, she was allowed to keep that dowry. And uh, that helped her as a means of financial support. So that, that's what the certificate of divorce was designed to do. But let's go back to this whole passage where Jesus was confronted about, well, Moses said this. Not only did Jesus not command that they divorce, even if there was adultery, but he directly refuted the prevailing practice of no or any cause divorce. There are two popular rabbis during this period of time. You've probably heard of them. One was Hillel, and who was the liberal, and the Shammai, who was more um, conservative. But the, the rabbi Hillel followers were the ones that were, that was the, the philosophy or the practice of rabbinical teaching that was widely embraced, which is divorce for any cause. A man could divorce his wife if he burned her dinner, if he found someone more attractive than her, or if she embarrassed him in public. So Deuteronomy 24 was ground zero for this fierce debate between these schools of, of rabbinical thinking uh, between these two rabbis. So 
The any cause divorce, the groundless divorce practice came into increasing popularity during Jesus' time, which is why the scribes and Pharisees said, you allow a man to divorce his wife for any cause. Basically, they wanted him to take a position on this. But such divorces left women adrift in a very male-dominated world without hope of remarriage and completely at a loss. So Jesus stands in the gap and he says, no, I do not believe a man should send his wife away for any reason. For convenience, certainly not. Only for adultery. So the Pharisees defended their any-cause divorce by using an erroneous interpretation of Deuteronomy 24, which Jesus corrected. And basically they were saying, Jesus, are you going to contradict Moses who commanded men to divorce their wives? And of course, uh, that's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus concludes by saying this, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman sends her away, in other words, for reasons other than adultery, commits adultery. Now, the word sexual immorality, that's the word that the NIV uses. In other translations, it's like New American Standard, it's immorality. King James Version, adultery. Revised Standard Version is unchastity. But either way, it is a violation of the physical covenant, the one flesh physical union in marriage. It could be adultery, it could be bestiality, it could be incest, it could be homosexuality. These are the things that Jesus said is a, is a condition that he, he allows or he accepts for divorce. So let me wrap this up in, in some aspect. So Jesus' teaching on divorce in Matthew 5 and 19 was given specifically in response to a very popular yet erroneous interpretation of Deuteronomy 24 and was meant to address and close these rabbinic loopholes because they were very liberal, very open-minded about that. And so Jesus tightened the loose interpretation of divorce law. And he taught that divorce is only allowed in a case of a spouse committing pornea, but even then divorce is not mandated, only permitted because of our hard hearts. In fact, Jesus so restricted the exceptions for divorce that were popular or teaching at that time that when he was done with this teaching, his disciples concluded, quote, if this is the case, it is better not to marry. They got the message. Going from any cause divorce to no, I only recognize divorce for pornea within a marriage. Let me wrap this up because there's a lot of takeaways here, and I want to expound on this a little bit. What do we do with this? What do we take away from Jesus' teaching on divorce? Well, I believe the takeaway is going to really depend on where you're coming from today, whether you are divorced or you're currently in a very difficult, unsatisfying marriage. This will determine what you're going to, what you're going to walk away with. Let me see if I can speak to those. If your focus is on the biblical theology of divorce, then your takeaway is that Jesus only allowed divorce in the case of adultery, which is true. That's what Jesus said. That's what he spoke about. But is that the Bible's last word on divorce? No, it's not. If you know anything about Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul adds to this list. It is my understanding this morning, and you may disagree with me, and that's okay, but I want you to do the research on this. It's my understanding that biblically, adultery is not the only sin that can end a marriage. Many marriages are killed by neglect and abuse. Here's the deal. In Christian circles, and I've read a lot on this subject and I've studied a lot on it, we seem to have this focus on adultery as the only reason, exception, allowance for, for divorce in the Scriptures. But it gives the impression that God is oblivious or unfeeling or uncaring about a spouse who is in a potentially abusive 
situation. We don't think God really cares or has anything or anything to say about abuse and neglect, as if he's not interested in such things, as if such things do not touch his heart. I do not agree with that. I think he does deeply. Unfortunately, this is really more of a sermon series than it is a one-shot deal, so I don't have a chance to go into some of the other teachings that I believe express that if a man or woman withholds food, clothing, shelter, and even conjugal love, that there is a reason. But some of you have come out of horrific experiences. Is God blind to that? Is he blind to the abuse that can somehow take place in a marriage where your life may even be threatened? Of course not. But I want you to understand that there is more to this than just the teachings of Jesus Christ. But it was very, very specific in this passage. I challenge you and encourage you to do some research. Number two, if you've been divorced, you've probably been thinking of your own divorce in light of this teaching that Jesus shared and whether or not you got divorced on biblical grounds. Let me say this, because I've come out of churches where even as a leader, you could not ever be divorced or be an elder, deacon, pastor, or be married to somebody who was. Very, very strict. It somehow disqualified you. It was the scarlet D that you would have to bear all the time. We somehow have thrown out the idea that divorce is forgivable, that, we can, that there's, the ground is level at the cross. We've never, we don't, I don't understand that. We somehow evaluate or, or elevate certain sins to this level where you are disqualified from leadership, you are, you are damaged goods, and you no longer have any worth or value within the body of Christ. How sad is that? I wish I could spend more time talking about the grace and mercy of God and the compassion of God. He just says, go your way, sin no more. Number three, you're currently in an unsatisfying or difficult marriage. The assumption that we have to bring to this topic is, do you want to do the will of God? Is that your all-consuming desire? Do you go before God and say, I want to know your heart on this matter. I want to do it with all my heart. That's what I'm assuming today. But if you are in a difficult place in your marriage, does divorce cross your mind? I would say absolutely it crosses your mind because when you are in pain, what we want more than anything else is to get out of pain. So you may awake at 3 a.m. staring at the ceiling, weighing all of your options. Or you may be searching real estate sites to find some island property in French Polynesia and go there alone at some point. These things cross our minds. We have to be honest about that because we have the person that we are married to has the power to touch us at a very, very deep place. And if it's a difficult marriage, it is not something that is easily remedied. I get that. But hopefully, whenever we even remotely consider the possibility of dissolving a marriage, this type of self-examination, this self-reflection is something that we engage in in light of God's word. So I want to conclude today with not exclusively, but especially to those of you in a difficult marriage who are at that place where you have to decide, what do I do with this? in light of the, the teachings that, that we've been exposed to today. Here's what I want you to take away with today. This is my main idea. When Jesus taught on divorce, his focus was on God's original and purpose, God's original purpose and design for marriage and the heart issues that contribute to divorce rather than the legal loopholes. Instead of addressing the legal grounds for changing spouses, Jesus addressed the need for a radical change of heart. Because once we start getting lawyers involved, we really are in a very bad place. But is it possible for God to change us, one who may be contributing, but if we are not the perpetrator of the problems in the marriage, maybe to say, Lord, help me. Change my spouse. Change their heart. Because I know I can't do that because of that hard heart that they are expressing. Charles Spurgeon puts this so well, and he's speaking on a commentary to this passage. He says, what a king is ours 
who stretches his scepter over the realm of our inward lusts. How sovereignly he puts it when he says, but I say to you, who but a divine being has authority to speak in this fashion? His word is law. So it ought to be, seeing he touches vice at the fountainhead and forbids uncleanness in the heart. We are followers of God from the heart. That's what he's looking at. He looks past the outward appearance and the outward behavior and the mask and the exterior and the behavior. He's looking at what's going on inside of us. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was announcing a new way to relate to God, which was foreign to his audience because they, were, they did not relate to God the way that Jesus was expressing his relationship to God, but it was highly attractive to his audience. He announced that they could speak to God in familial terms, which Maya went over very well last week when he taught on how Jesus modeled prayer by beginning with our Father, addressing Yahweh as Father. The office of priesthood was about to be done away with. The old covenant was about to be replaced by a new one, inaugurated by a new and perfect and final sacrificial lamb, Christ himself. The veil in the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies would be rent in two. Access would be, access would be made to all now, no longer just a high priest once a year. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see that the heart of Jesus towards his father. He, he calls him father 15 times in this message. Don't miss that. But here we have cultures colliding because the old covenant, Jesus came to not abolish the law but to fulfill it. So three things were, were colliding here between religious cultures. Number one, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted Jesus to, they wanted Jesus' take on Moses' command to divorce based on Deuteronomy 24. Jesus wants to talk about the sanctity of marriage. The Pharisees kept trying to pull Jesus into a legal battle. Which rabbinic school do you align yourself with? But they weren't seeking God. They were seeking to trick him. Number two, the scribes and the Pharisees wanted to know which school got it right. Jesus wants to address the heart issues, which is why divorce happens in the first place. And number three, the scribes and Pharisees were obsessed with legal loopholes for sanctioning a divorce. And Jesus was all about closing these holes and directing men and women to God, the Father who can restore marriages and soften hearts. So Jesus throws back the curtain. He exposes motives. He exposes the heart of lust. He exposes the heart of anger. He also exposes their lack of mercy and their lack of compassion. He reveals to us in the Sermon on the Mount a God who knows our thoughts, the very motives of our heart, our anxiety, our brokenness, and even our unhappiness or our dissatisfaction, that he is intimate with us just as we are to be intimate with our spouses. Because what legalists do is they talk about divorce case law. What's the exception? How can I get out of this? Jesus is proclaiming a new way of relating to God as a groom to his beloved bride, language that they weren't familiar with at all. And that's who we are. We are the bride of Christ. Maya used this, shared this verse last week, Ephesians 5. It brings a whole new perspective into the, the institution of marriage that God created because the, the, the marriage union is the, is the greatest expression in human terms of the relationship between God, the groom, and his church, the bride. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church. And how did he do that? Well, he gave himself up for her. That's the part about suffering that I was talking about earlier. So that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, 
that he might present to him the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but, but that she would be holy and blameless. So when we laugh about Woody Allen's three rings, when we get to suffering, how difficult is it to die to self? How difficult is it to exchange the life that we had with the, for the life of God? To die to self, to be buried with him in baptism, be raised up in newness of life. Does self die easily? G. Paul said, I die daily, every day. We come before God and say, not my will, but yours be done, because I am selfish. I want to do it my way. I draw a circle around myself. Marriage involves death to self over and over and over again. But that's what's required to, re- to live in rich community with God himself, our groom, as his bride. Jesus said in Matthew 19, divorce is always the result of, in the Greek, sclerocardia, which we get our term cardiosclerosis, hard heart. It is always the result of someone who tightens up and says, I will not submit, I will not give in, I will not be broken, I will not soften, I want my way. The law seeks a way out. The way of the cross requires losing oneself for the sake of Christ. It's no coincidence that just three verses after Jesus speaks on divorce, after he was challenged on divorce in Matthew 19, that he says this about a man who came up to him and said, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, keep all the commandments. And he said, I've done that, which is an incredibly arrogant statement. And then Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. But the young man heard this, when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one that owned much property. Jesus calls on me as a husband. He calls on you gentlemen as husbands, wives. He calls on you. He says, in order to be complete, in order to, be a, to ex- explain to the world what it means to have a relationship and rich communion with God the Father, it means giving up all that you have, entrusting me, changing heart, radical change from the inside out because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Only then will the world know that this marriage was founded on Christ. How many of us, knowing that God, what God requires of us, his bride, walk away grieving like this young man did because our lover asks for more than we're willing to give? One person wrote that love is like death. It wants all of us. And Christian marriage, the Christian faith, like marriage, aims at teaching us that the times when we are most like our Lord is when we are busy losing ourselves in another. That's the true spirit of marriage. That is the true spirit of knowing God. But for some, this price is too great. That is what Christ is calling us back into today, and I hope you'll take away with you because that's what I'm taking away. I've had to wrestle with this for six weeks, and believe me, I keep looking at my own cardiosclerosis and saying, Father, only you can change my stubborn, angry heart. Change me from the inside out. Help me to love my wife well. And so husbands and wives, will you choose the way of the cross today? I want to pray for you, and I'm praying for myself as I close. Let's go to the throne of grace. <sighs> Father, I, I feel the weight of this message. I have felt it for weeks. I hope I have done justice to your text, and I hope first and foremost that I will wash it through my own life because I am an, a man of unclean lips. I'm a man who sins regularly. I'm a man who wants to get out of pain. And I'm sorry for the burden that I have placed on my own wife for the need to be happy all the time. Father, would you change us? I'm in a community of fellow strugglers. 
We suffer in this life. We know that because our lives were meant to be in rich communion with you. But we live on this earth, and we are confronted daily with the limitations of our own ability. But you live in us. Your Holy Spirit dwells in us. That's something we take by faith. And if, you, and if the Spirit of God lives in me, and your spirit is one of intimacy and one of oneness and one of, of desiring the Father, then I am able to seek the Father. I am able to cast aside my own wants and my own selfishness for the sake of my wife and my children. Father, would you do that? Would you make, let us be a community of faith. Would you be with the, the couples right now that are on the verge of divorce? Would you help call them back to brokenness, to intimacy, and to realizing what's going on in their hearts and that you can heal anything? We ask you to do that in Jesus' name. And Father, use your word powerfully this morning. Wash away the stain of guilt, the stain of sin, the stain of brokenness. Would you bring us back to the cross where you have washed away the blemish of our sin with the perfect sacrificial lamb of God? And would you remind us, Father, that you accept us as we come to you by faith, asking forgiveness and trusting you to wash us. We will do that today. We thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of your word and the sanctity of this institution of marriage. It still works. And pray that you'll help us to do likewise. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys are dismissed. Thank you.